Amen. Good morning. Would you remain standing and let's give attention to our passage this morning, which is found in James, the second chapter, verses 1 through 13. This is God's word to you this morning. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over here or sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed. It is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, aren't you committing a sin? You're guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is guilty as the person who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said, you must not commit adultery has also said, you must not murder. So if you murder someone, but you don't commit adultery, you've still broken the law. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. Verse 13, there will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. The word of God to you this morning. You can be seated, thank you. Last week we finished chapter one and chapter one uh, concludes with a, a very vivid instruction from James to his audience, his congregation. And in James chapter one, verse 27, just to set the context, as we jump into chapter two today in our study, James says this, James chapter one, verse 27. He says, pure and genuine religion and the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. And I mentioned last week that in the original Greek language, the Koine common Greek that the New Testament was written in, the conjunction and, I separated it here, is not found in the original language. It was added later on to read better in English when it was transliterated. So uh, when you read that again and you take the conjunction and out, basically James is saying your religion, pure and genuine devotion to God shows up in the way you treat people, especially the people that can do nothing in return for you. And somehow this connects and helps protect your heart from the corruption and the pollution of the world. And so your relationship with God is evidenced in your relationship with other people, especially people that can do nothing for you. And we talked about pure and genuine religion as it's mentioned here by James at the end of chapter one, as your faithful devotion to God. And we talked about your faithful devotion to God flows from one or two words. Do you remember this? This is so important. 
that the way you behave shows how you believe. In other words, what you believe is going to be evidenced over time in how you behave, especially towards other people. And we said the two words that all of this sort of pivots on are for and from. Do you remember this? For and from. Am I living for God's approval? Right? And if I'm living for God's approval, I'm constantly striving to get God's attention, his approval in my life. And here's the deal. If I'm living for God's approval, then I always need uh, something from other people. Or am I living from God's approval? Do I know that I have been accepted, forgiven, uh, placed in God's family, adopted into his love and his forever family? Am I living from my identity in Christ? And if I'm living from my identity in Christ, then all of my faithful devotion in my life, the way I, I serve and the things that I do, are all coming from a place of completed identity. And I need nothing from you. I just want something for you. Guys, this, this makes all the difference. When I'm living for the acceptance of God, again, I need all kinds of things from other people. But when I'm living from the approval and the acceptance of God, I just want something for other people. Listen, you want to change your marriage? Understand this. You want to change your parenting, your grandparenting? You want to change your relationship with your coworkers? Your, um, your neighbors, you want to change relationship with your friendships, your best friends, stop needing something from them and want something for them. And when I know that I have everything that I need in Jesus, when I'm accepted in him, when I'm forgiven in him, when I'm placed in his forever family, and that's my identity as a child of God, I don't need anything from you. I just want something for you. I want the same thing for you that I found in Jesus, and it changes everything. Remember in the, in the late 90s, the movie Jerry Maguire, and in the pivotal scene and moment, he's standing before Renee Zellweger, and he says, you complete me. Ugh. And, and I mean, it just goes so against the gospel. Because I'm looking to somebody else and going, maybe you'll complete me if I just find the love of my life. If I just find the perfect job, if I just find my BFF, then they will complete me. And finally, I'll know what I was made for. I'll understand perfect love. And, you know, we watch that scene, we go, oh, and it goes completely against what God says. Because when I'm looking for someone else to complete me, I'll always be looking Listen, guys, if Jesus isn't enough, everyone watch this. If Jesus isn't enough in your life, no one and nothing ever will be. If Jesus isn't enough, no one and nothing ever will be. As a dad, you know, I have, with three teenagers, you know, I'm, I'm so tempted with my kids. Like, if they're doing well, I feel good about myself and my parenting, if I'm honest with you. We've done a pretty good job for all of our mistakes. When they're not doing well and they're struggling and they're confused, I feel like, man, I'm, I'm a failure. And I don't know about you, this is just one aspect of my life. I can ride the roller coaster of identity up and down. And the truth is, even with the people that I love the most, I'm needing something from them. 
I need your conformity to my desires for your life. I need you to be a good little boy and a good little girl so I can feel good about myself. Ouch. And this can happen in the relationships that we even love the most with our, with our marriages, with our parenting, with our co-working, with our neighbors even. We need something from them because we don't have everything we need in Jesus. But here's a life-changing truth that'll just blow you away. God doesn't need something from you. God wants something for you. And that's why he sent Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave. He wants something for you, not from you. And when I'm complete in Jesus, when I'm living from a place of identity in Jesus, I just want something for other people in my life. Beginning with the people that I live in the same house with, with my spouse, with my children, my grandchildren, my friends, my neighbors. I want something for them in the same way that I found in Jesus. And this is why James says, back to the text, verse 27, be really careful that you have a tender heart towards people that can do nothing for you. Why? The orphan and the widow, the lowest in that society, right? The least, the last, and the lost, uh, people that can do nothing for you. It's not a quid pro quo. It's not scratch, you know, your back, you scratch my back. No, they can do nothing for you. And why is this so important that my heart is warm towards people that can do nothing for me? Because it orders every other relationship in my life. It reminds me that I'm serving from a place of identity, not for my identity. If you care for people who can do nothing for you in return, it begins to order every other primary relationship in your life. And it keeps your heart, verse 27, from being corrupted by the story of the world, from being corrupted from evil. Now, how does this keep the way you treat other people, especially people that can do nothing for you, how does this keep you from being polluted or corrupted from the story of the world? Well, let's go back and talk about what is the story of the world. It was authored by the enemy of your heart and my heart. And we see it show up two chapters into the Bible in Genesis chapter three. And the story of the world is basically this, that you are nothing more than a consumer. Now, why do I say that? Because in the story of Genesis 3, and go back and read it for yourself this week, when evil enters into the story of God, the enemy convinces Adam and Eve that they're consumers. Think about it. God says to Adam and Eve, this garden was made for you. You can enjoy it and have dominion over it, and you can take and eat and and live off of everything in the garden, a variety of fruits and trees and vegetables and all kinds of things that you can live from, except for one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was at the center of the garden. And what does the enemy say to Adam and Eve? Consume it. Take it. God is holding out on you. If God really had your best interest in mind, there would be no boundaries. He would allow you to take and consume everything. And here's the deal. God walked with Adam and Eve, right? They're living in the garden with God, taking of all the wonderful gifts that God has. And it wasn't enough because they were convinced of the story of the world, the story of the enemy, that you're nothing more than a consumer, 
And so your job is to take and to consume everything, to take from other people, consume it all. I want you to listen to the two narratives side by side. The story of the world, the story of the enemy of your heart and my heart is you're nothing more than a consumer. So you're constantly taking from other people. You live a life of lust. Lust is all about what you can get. I'm taking from other people in all kinds of different ways, financially, physically, relationally, emotionally. I'm just a taker. And when I'm done with people and I'm done consuming from them and they can do nothing else for me, I destroy them and I discard them. And I move on to the next person. That's the story of the world. It shows up right in Genesis 3. It's not enough that you have a vibrant relationship and you're walking with God and he's given you all these things to enjoy. Consume everything. The story of God is you're not a consumer, you're a child. The enemy says you're a consumer. God says you're my children. And so children, you don't need to take anything. You just need to receive all good things that I've provided for you, including the boundaries that I've put in place in your life. So these two stories collide, right? The story of the world says you're a consumer. The story of God says you're a child. The story of the world says you're a taker. The story of God says you're a receiver. Do you see that? And how I position and posture my heart and orient my heart towards God is all about whether I'm living for his approval as a consumer or from his approval as a child. And what I believe, everyone watch this, what's the story I'm believing, the story of the world, the story of God, the story of the world as a consumer, the story of God as a child, what I believe will ultimately show up in how I behave in my words, in my actions. And this is what James is writing about as we start in chapter one. He talks about your speech. He talks about how you listen, how you obey. He talks about anger, which always, by the way, if you struggle with anger, which many of us do, is always connected to control. When you get angry, you should ask yourself the question, what am I trying to control? Who am I trying to control? How do I feel out of control? And oftentimes that leads me back to the story of I need something from someone. I need them to behave a certain way. I need them to look a certain way, to say certain things. So I feel better about myself and I'm consuming them. I know this is a difficult teaching, but it has everything to do about how we relate to God, which has everything to do, watch this, about how we relate to other people. And when I'm constantly striving in my relationship with God for his approval, then I need something from you particularly from the people that are closest to me. When I've got everything I need in Jesus and I'm living from my identity in Christ, I just want something for you. And James knows this. So as we come into chapter two in our study of his letter to his congregation, he plays this out in a really vivid way. In fact, he gives an example and he starts this warning with a, with a, a term of endearment that shows up over and over and over again in the letter if you've been studying and reading along with us. He says, dear brothers and sisters in verse one, look at it with me in chapter two, dear brothers and sisters. And he's reminding them that literally in the Greek, it means my fellow followers of Jesus. So James is reminding them as their pastor, as they're dispersed all around outside of Palestine, facing all kinds of persecution and wondering how they're going to get through what they're going through, which is the question many of you are asking. He wants to remind them that I'm with you. I'm a fellow sojourner on the journey. I'm with you, my dear brothers and sisters, my fellow followers of Jesus. And then he begins to unpack how they're relating to God and how it's affecting how they're relating to other people. So look at verses two through four. He gives this vivid example. 
He says, suppose that a, a wealthy person, a rich person who's you know, got um, wonderful clothes on, they're adorned with all kinds of jewelry, and it's very evident and overt to everyone that they're wealthy and influential and powerful. And suppose they walk into your meeting, into an assembly, into a worship space like we're gathered this morning, and you say, oh, you, you come sit with me. You're, you're going to sit in the place of honor, the best seat in the house because of the way that you look. And then a poor person comes in, it's very evident, their clothes are dirty, they're a little bit disheveled, and you, you don't give them the time of day, you don't greet them, and you say, you can sit on the floor. And James says, look, this is wrong, and let me warn you why this is so wrong. It's called partiality or favoritism or discrimination, and it's a big deal because your instinct to consume has kicked in. You're believing the story of the world. And so you look at someone who's powerful and influential and wealthy, and you think, what can I get from them? So you seat them in a really good place, and you treat them a certain way, and the person that doesn't look wealthy and is poor, you couldn't care less about, and you treat them differently, even in the assembly of God's people. And then James gives this stark warning. Look at verse 4. He gives a blunt correction and warning to the people. He says, you're making judgments with what? Evil motives. Ouch. He doesn't say, hey, this is bad form. You shouldn't do it. He doesn't say, hey, you learned in kindergarten. You should treat everybody the same. Remember the golden rule. Treat others the way you want to be treated. He says, it's evil. Why does James say it's evil? And you kind of go on the list of sins and bad things, favoritism or partiality seems like it wouldn't be like at the evil level unless it's tapping into something much deeper. And if favoritism is the tip of the iceberg, then what lies beneath is so much deeper. And James knows that. It's actually tapping into an evil story. And watch this, an evil force that wants to still kill and destroy everything in God's good world. And James, know, know, James knows how important this is, that this kind of favoritism has no place in Christianity because it says in effect that someone is worth more, who's worth more to the world's story and the world's value is worth more in God's story and in God's assembly. This kind of partiality places itself, plays itself out in many ways. Uh, it judges one, listen to this, it judges one person's soul as being of greater value than another person's soul, and it does so on the false premise of the world's agenda and story. In other words, favoritism, let me just give a definition, a biblical definition of favoritism as James is describing it here in James 2. Favoritism is valuing others by the values of the world. Valuing others by the values of the world. So the values of the world's story. In other words, your clothes, your position, your influence, your power, that would be more valued than someone who's poor and doesn't have influence or power or, or riches to give you because you're a consumer, remember? So if someone has power or influence or money, I wanna consume you. And how does it feel to be consumed? Doesn't feel too good, does it? Have any of you ever felt like you've been the, the victim of partiality or favoritism? whether it's in a classroom or a work environment or in a friendship or maybe even in your own family, maybe even in church, you felt like, whoa, you guys are, I'm just going to preach right here to you guys, right? <laughs> Have any of you felt that way? 
That's amazing. I don't know. Um, have any of you felt that way before? Like in class or you felt like, man, like I think someone just got chosen for the job or chosen to lead the class line or whatever it is because of the way they talk or the way they look or, or who they're related to or where they're from, whatever it might be. The truth is, guys, in the world story, we find all kinds of ways to categorize people. We do. We do it by their appearance. We do it by their wealth. We do it by their education. We do it by their social status. We do it by all kinds of ways. And it has no place in the church because it goes directly against the story of God. And James doesn't pull any punches. He says it's actually evil the way we do this because we're valuing people with the values of the world and not the value of God. But I want to go even further, okay? And I want to encourage you, maybe if you have something to write with, just to write these three things down. Because I want to tell you why it's an even bigger deal biblically. Why favoritism, discrimination, partiality, judging other people, which we'll get into next week. Why is this such a big deal? It seems like most of the world religions, even just good ethics, would say you should treat other people kindly and not do this. So what's the big deal in Christianity? Why does James take 13 verses to talk about this? Well, let me give you three reasons why. They're right here in our text. The reason why this is a such a big deal, favoritism, is because it goes against God's choice. Look at verses 5 through 7 in James 2. What do I mean by that? God chose to take the poor of this world and to make them rich in the kingdom. James asked his congregation, look at the, the text here, verse 5, to notice the people who were responding to the good news of Jesus. And by and large, the people in their assembly were people in poverty, people who didn't have power and influence. Why do you think it is that the message of Jesus, the message of mercy and grace, was so attractive to the poor in spirit and even the poor monetarily, whether it's influence or power or their bank account? Why do you think impoverished people responded to Jesus? Because his kingdom values were completely different than the values of the world and the story of the world. Jesus comes and says, blessed are the poor in spirit. You're going to see the kingdom. The story of the world has no, has no place for people who are poor because they have nothing to give. I can't take anything from them. And remember, James is really preaching again and writing the letter of his big brother, Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, his most famous sermon, and particularly the Beatitudes, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus gives a set of kingdom values that are in stark contrast to the values of the story of the world. And, and he flips the, the world upside down. And one of those, he says, again, blessed are the poor in spirit, they're going to see the kingdom of God. People who know that they're poor in spirit, people who are poor in the values of this world are closer to the kingdom of God. Why? Because they have less to be stripped away. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to walk through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into the kingdom of God. Does it mean that people who have money in their bank account can't get into the kingdom of God? Absolutely not. What it means is that people who are placing their value on the story of this world and the values of this world oftentimes don't value grace and mercy and the values of the kingdom. And it's much more difficult for them to receive Jesus because they've built up their kingdom in this world. Anybody with me? 
So he says, the reason why favoritism and treating other people, valuing other people with the values of this world and the story of this world is so wrong and it's such a big deal is because it goes against God's choice. Jesus tells a story in the Gospel of Luke in his section on parables. And he talks about a rich man who's put up lots of wealth for himself, right? And the rich man says to himself, tonight, you know, I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry because I've, I've, I've basically valued myself with the story of this world. And Jesus says, you fool, Tonight, your very soul will be required of you. In other words, everything you've built in the story of this world will pass away. And what do you have when you stand before God? So Jesus reminds his audience through that parable and James reminds his audience through this instruction that God has chosen the poor in spending and in spirit to be able to see the kingdom of God. Now, I wanna be clear. James isn't saying that those who have money or power or influence are inherently bad. In fact, God blesses us with those things to be good stewards and use them for the kingdom. What James is saying is when I'm finding my ultimate value in the story of this world as a consumer, it keeps me from seeing God. And the evidence of that, by the way, is how I treat other people. If I'm treating other people differently because of the way they dress, the way they look, the way they talk, their education, all those sorts of things, it shows an insight into my heart. That's why it's a big deal. But he goes further. He says here uh, that it goes against God's law, verses 8 through 12. What does that mean? It goes through against God's law. He says, yes, indeed, it's good to obey the royal law. Underline that if you're following along in your scriptures or on your phone, the royal law. What is the royal law? The royal law is found in Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 6. We referenced it last week. And it's given by Jesus when he gives the greatest commandment. He says, let me summarize all the law to you in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And this is known as the royal law. Why is it the royal law? Because King Jesus gives the law for his kingdom. And so James refers to it as the royal law because really it holds all of the law. The way you love God and other people holds all of the law together. It's the great summary. And so James draws our attention back to the Old Testament law. To love our neighbors means that we're keeping all of the law. And loving our neighbors as we love ourselves summarizes everything God wants for us and how we live and relate to other people. Again, that's why he calls it the royal law, because of King Jesus. But it goes even further. You say, what does this have to do with favoritism? Well, James begins to unpack in verses 9 and 10. Look at it with me. He says, you know, if you've broken one law, you've broken all the law. Whoops. Okay, the story of this world says, um, you know, when you get to heaven, wherever that is, and whoever God is, we can't really know, Hopefully you've done more good. You've, you've put more good things out there than you've taken, right? And you, and you slide in 51 to 49, right? And James says, like rec- record scratch, uh, that's not what the Bible says. That's not the royal law. That's, that's not God's way. God's way is 100 or zero. And he says that in a very vivid and provocative way here. He says, you know, you say like, I haven't committed adultery, I haven't committed murder, but if, you, if you've broken one law, you've, you've broken all of the law. You say, well, what does this have to do with favoritism? Well, if you've broken God's law about how you treat your neighbor, if you've discriminated or shown partiality or favoritism over someone else, you've broken a part of God's law in the way that we treat other people. And it shows how we're, we're seeing God. Are we living from or for? And he says, and if you've done that, 
The reason why this is such a big deal is because now you've broken all the law. We have a, um, a, a little window pane on our garage that's broken. The, the investigation is still ongoing for what's happened, right? I'm going to guess it was a golf ball or a softball or a baseball, right? But nobody's fessed up yet. But if I brought someone to the house to fix the window and I said, hey, look, you know, the window's broken, but look, there's 20% here in the window pane that's fine. I'm only going to pay for 80%. I only want you to fix the 80% part that's broken. The rest of it is fine. They would laugh and walk away. It's either broken or it's not. It either has to be fixed or it doesn't. And this is what James is saying. The reason why this is such a big deal is because the way you treat other people, again, shows how you, you, you view God. And if you've broken God's law in the way you treat other people, you've broken the royal law, you've broken all of it. Uh-oh. So what are we going to do about it? Well, the third reason why this is such a big deal is because favoritism and even as we get into next week, judging other people drives me to the gospel, right? And why does this drive me to the gospel? Because when I read words like, if you've broken one of the laws, you've broken all the laws, I don't know about you, but I get to the place very quickly where I go, I need God's grace and mercy. And that's the purpose of the law, dear friends. The purpose of the law is to break you. The purpose of the law is to remind you that you're not God. And despite the story of the world that says you are God and you can be like God and you can consume everything and take from other people, God's law reminds us that we're not, that we are not perfect. Even in our words and our actions to other people, we're not perfect, we're broken. And if we've broken one of the laws, we've broken all of them. So what's the solution? God's mercy. This drives me to my need for mercy. Look at verses 12 and 13. James says, whoever of you would say whatever you do, remember, you'll be judged by the law that sets you free. Interesting. So when I look to God's law, which ultimately Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to do what? I came to fulfill the law. So what is James saying? When I look at Jesus, watch this. When I look at Jesus, the one who kept the law perfectly, the only one who kept the law perfectly, when I look into the perfect law, Jesus himself, I am both broken and I'm set free. And this is the gospel. The bad news is worse than you thought, guys. The bad news is if you've broken one of God's laws, you've broken them all. But the good news of the gospel is greater than you could ever imagine. That it actually drives me to a place of poverty and spirit when I know that I'm not going to make it on my own. And I cry out for God's mercy and he gives it to me freely. That Jesus came as a gift from God the Father to do for you and for me what we could not, and check this out, what we would not do for ourselves. And while we were still sinning in the story of the world, Jesus came and set us free. So verse 12, James 2, when I look at the perfect law, when I look at Jesus, it both judges me, right? Because I know that I don't meet the standard of Jesus. And out of my uh, poverty and brokenness, I cry out for God's mercy and grace and it sets me free. 
And then verse 13 says, and then the way it plays itself out is you show mercy to other people. The greatest evidence that you've received God's mercy and the gospel is you show that same gospel mercy to other people. And by the way, what is mercy? Let's give a biblical definition of mercy because James uses the word. What is mercy? Mercy is not receiving what you deserve. Grace is receiving what you don't deserve. Mercy is not receiving what you deserve. Now, what do I deserve if I'm a lawbreaker who's broken all of God's commands, even if I've only broken one? Well, biblically, I deserve separation from God. I deserve the penalty of death. The wages of sin and brokenness is death. The gift of God, it is a gift, is eternal life in Jesus. So I'm both judged by my own actions and my, all, my own law breaking, and I'm set free in the same verse. It's a beautiful verse by the actions of Jesus on my behalf. And it all drives me back to mercy. And you go, man, that's all about favoritism? Yeah, because the way you treat other people drives me to the story that I'm believing. Do I need something from you? Do I want something for you? Am I trying to consume you and take from you? Or do I just want to be a child of God receiving and giving and serving other people? This is what mercy is all about. And James, as their pastor, knows that this is about something so much more than discrimination, partiality, and favoritism. Bad as it is on its own, it's even worse because all of those behaviors and the way I treat other people that way shows me what I'm believing about God. And James loves them too much, and I love you too much not to tell you that. That the way you treat other people, the way you behave, ultimately shows you what you believe. And so if partiality, favoritism, judging, discrimination, all of these things are a part of your life, ultimately it shows me what I'm believing about God. And there's something so much greater for you that God doesn't need anything from you. He wants something for you. And that's what the gospel is all about. And so James says, this is a big deal because it goes against God's choice right? And choosing to use the things of this world that are impoverished to to be rich in the kingdom, right? It it goes against God's law, right? Because we've all, we're all, we've all broken the law and we've all been set free by Jesus. So if we've all been set free by Jesus, why would we judge other people? And why would we discriminate against other people? And it goes against God's mercy that we don't, each of us, we don't get what we deserve because of grace. Now, here's the thing. I'll close right here. A lot of people, when they, when they come to understand religion, a lot of people in your circles, right? We talked about religion last week as defined as a, as a faithful devotion to a deity that you're believing in. And in this way, you know, when people say, I'm not very religious, yeah, right. Every person is religious by, that, by Webster's definition. They're your faithful devotion to a deity. Now, a lot of people's deity is themselves, or other people, but I'm faithfully devoted to what I'm believing. You know, my atheist friends, right, who say, I don't believe there's a God. I say, well, yeah, you do. You're believing that you're a God because you've made that determination. And the only one who could be able to say that and looking at the world and, and concluding there is no God and saying that definitively is someone who thinks they're God. 
or has all the knowledge. I'm not judging that. I'm just saying, look, to be logical about it, to say there is no God in the world and that's my system. Well, you're putting yourself in the position of God that you've made that conclusion. For my agnostic friends who say, well, maybe there is a God, but we just can't know him or her or, or the deity or whatever. We just, we just can't understand it. Okay, well, you're drawing that conclusion and you're building your life and your faithful devotion on your religious beliefs. So my point is that every person is religious. And most people, right, they're living the religiosity of the 51 to 49% rule. I just hope I do more good in the world than I do bad. And James blows that up, right? When he says, well, if you've done one thing, you've done it all. And that goes against the story of the world. Speaking of stories, I heard a story about a lady, a great, great woman who lived her life in such an amazing way. And maybe this will be an example that we can hold throughout the week to talk about God's mercy. You know, she, she used her power and her influence, a lot of things that we're talking about today, she used them for good. And she built hospitals. She, she gave money to schools. She helped feed the hungry and clothe those who were, clo- um, uh, who were naked, who, who, who needed shelter, who needed places to, to sleep. And uh, she did all kinds of things. She supported missionaries in her church and, and was just kind and and she was a scorekeeper. Her, her, her motive in all that quietly was she was living for the approval of God. And she did all these things because she wanted to get the 51% rule when she, when she died. And the story goes that she went to heaven, what most people think, right? And she stands at the pearly gates, right? And this is, you know, such bogus, you know, thinking biblically. But people think this that I stand at the gate and I plead my case before uh, Peter and that Peter has this scroll and that he's in charge of all this. And she says, you know, I built that hospital. And don't forget, I don't know if it's on your list, but, you know, I gave that money for the kids that, you know, couldn't eat. And I was really careful to, to give all my clothes away for people who didn't have clothes. And, and I built that shelter for the homeless. And I supported those missionaries in my church. I did, I did all those things, right? And I just want to make sure you're calculating on it. Peter's going, I got it all right here. I got it all, I got it all right here. And he's calculating, he's calculating. And she said, I just hope that it's 51, you know, that I'm, I'm over, I'm over the, the line. And he goes, I've added it all up and it's about 2%. And she goes, you're, you're kidding me. Let, me. let me see that. What are you looking at? The hospital and the school and whatever. I mean, if, if I can't get in here off of my good works, then, then God have mercy. And Peter says, thankfully he does. And that's all it takes. Here's the bottom line for James 2, 1 through 13. Quit keeping score and let mercy win. Verse 13 says, mercy triumphs. Mercy wins the day. The gospel saves me from the story of the world as just a consumer. And it invites me into God's story as a child. To Christ alone be the glory. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your great mercy to us. Thank you that when we were running the other direction, when we were living by the story of this world and the values of this world, you came and died for us. 
you took upon us the judgment, the separation, and the sin that we deserve because we've broken your laws. And so may we show that same mercy to other people in the way we speak, the way we treat them. May we live in your story as your children and not the story of this world as consumers. And more than anything today, would your mercy and the reminder of the gospel and what you've done for us, Jesus, may it fill us with gratitude, with a heart of thanksgiving that overflows in the way we treat other people. Would you give us the wisdom today to know us what you've to know what we've, we've heard from your word, what you've spoken to our hearts individually and collectively as a church? Give us wisdom. And would you give us courage and faith to leave this place and to live it out? In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.